Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show. So much to discuss today. A lot of news. Uh, spent a great deal of time writing up this show. Uh, breaking news on on the crypto front when it comes to FTX. Sam Bankman-Fried going on a PR tour, a charm offensive. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, developments from the House leadership race. Biden pausing student loans. A lot of serious news to get to today. Today's show of course, streaming now on YouTube late, uh, streaming now, I guess, 347. I thought we were going to be 330 uh, by the time that uh, Kanye West situation wrapped up and get got the lights turned on and all set up here. It ended up being uh, now a little bit even beyond that. But we are here. And uh, of course, I have to lead off the show by talking a little bit about that. And, and I've got clips, and you have followed my commentary, many of you live on Telegram, as I have sort of kept up with it and uh, tried to understand what's taking place. And, you know, as, a, as I was getting ready for this show, as I was getting ready for uh, what's going on here today and, and, and doing the show late and adjusting for the fact that there was this uh, live stream of InfoWars that had probably 30 or 40 million viewers from around the world, uh, I had to make some adjustments to today's show and, and fit this all in and try to understand what's really going on. So let's begin by talking about this uh, situation, this uh, Kanye West situation, this very, very bizarre, strange uh, show that took place. Of course, the backdrop of this is that earlier in the week, Kanye West uh, was supposed to be on Tim Pool's show. He brought along with him Milo Yiannopoulos, and he brought along with him uh, Nick Fuentes. To be very clear about uh, any relationship that I have with these people, I've debated Nick Fuentes, I think, three different times publicly on the issues of Middle East policy, Israel, uh, and his perception and claim that Jews run the world and all of this sort of stuff. That's been what I've done with Nick. Those debates, I think, were productive. I think that uh, I got through my perspective on on the issue pretty clearly. And then in terms of Milo Yiannopoulos, he's somebody, of course, he was a huge brand in 2016-17. He sort of uh, fell off the radar to some degree. I knew him uh, in 2019 for a period of time. He then went into a drug binge and threatened to kill uh, my business partner, Jack Berkman's dog, and a number of other deranged things he's done. So that's Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, that was sort of the backdrop of what's going on here with Kanye West. Now, and I'm just going to call him Kanye West, uh, if you don't mind. I mean, he did. I, I'm not going to play games here with his bizarre antics and 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 call him some new misspelled name or, or whatever he demands. I'm going to call him his his name and the name that I think most people know him by, which is which is Kanye West. Now, as I was sort of getting ready for this show, there's the Infowars stream taking place, and I was was just sort of putting myself together to do the show, turning on the lights and stuff like this, and I have to listen to Owen Schroyer in the background. Owen Schroyer, by the way, somebody who over the years has been quite rude to me. I will I will add really quite rude and 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 uh 
I don't know why, um, but he, he really has been. And I have to listen to this unbelievable nitwit, Owen Schroyer. This this unbelievable, uh, talentless bag of flesh, Owen Schroyer. Tell us all that Kanye West is really, he's on the cutting edge of the zeitgeist. He's, he's really dialed in. He is... Uh, he is edgy and new and cool, and he's on the cutting edge of what's real. And 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 Kanye just wants to speak. And uh, anybody, all these people freaking out on Twitter, they they're they are the enemies of the First Amendment because Kanye needs to speak. He's speaking, and if they've got a problem with it, well, they're anti First Amendment. And. As you know, many of the people criticizing Kanye West are people who have who have criticized me. Many are not. Many are are people uh, who I would consider friends. And I've got to listen to this absolute moron who has zero domain expertise in anything, who has never, to my knowledge, held down any kind of a real job that's demonstrated intellectual capability. Get up there with this you know, cosplay beard and tell me that Kanye West is actually the brilliant one. And we, you know, we just don't get it. We're just not, we're just not dialed into the zeitgeist because yay is going to be president in 2024. We just don't get it yet. I mean, it's, it's like, my God, any conflict of interest with this reporting? No, I have no conflicts of interest with this reporting. I have no involvement I'm not, I'm not conflicted. I always disclose that if that's the case. That's why I talked about my very basic involvement with two of these characters, but I don't think that it presents any kind of conflict when it comes to this reporting. So I, I've, I've got to talk, I, I've got to listen to these, this, this complete moron tell me that uh, Kanye West is actually on the cutting edge of things and I just don't get it. Really? Really? I mean, to my knowledge, nobody's trying to stop Kanye West from speaking. Kanye West is just ranting and raving uh, in a in a fit of total men- mental illness. He would have been much better off had he stayed with his handlers. He would have been much better off today had he been institutionalized by... Harvey Pasternak, and I mean, he, he can't be institutionalized by Harvey or, or, or Harley Pasternak, by the way. I mean, it, it's not like he can make that determination and adjudicate somebody mentally ill. He could call for assistance. He could attempt to, to, to seek some help for him. I mean, but he can't make that uh, ruling himself. That's up to authorities, a judge, doctors, not the personal trainer. But instead, you have this uh, guy, Kanye West, who is just in a complete uh, fit of mental illness, in a total state of bipolar depression, mania, uh, psychosis even, I think would be fair to say. One tidbit that came out in this interview with uh, Alex Jones, with Nick Fuentes there uh, in, in the passenger seat, is that Kanye West said that he is drinking and smoking once again, uh, and that God speaks to him when he drinks and smokes. I mean, if there's anything that could be more uh, 
stereotypically the 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 rantings of somebody in the midst of a crisis in the midst of a substance abuse aided along uh, you know or substance abuse induced crisis it would be words like that and he says he's drinking and smoking again of course we know back in i think it was 2014 sony had to cancel a kanye west tour because he suffered from marijuana induced psychosis so you have Kanye West up here, you know, claiming that he loves Hitler, claiming that he loves the Nazis, um, claiming that Hitler was a cool leader. And then the explanation is some kind of uh, very twisted, confused claim that, well, you see, they used to call us N-words and now we call ourselves N-words, so we owned it, so now we took that weapon away from them and now... He claims he's going to do the same thing with being called a neo-Nazi and he's going to wear that claim and then it will then be taken away from his enemies or something or something. He talked about how uh, Jared Kushner's brother owns 10% of his wife's clothing brand and he only owns 5% and why would that be? But then he says, well, actually he invested $150 million in it. Well, oh, maybe that's a good reason. You know, but he claims to be the creative genius. It's like, well, I don't know about that. By all indications, Kanye West has not really ever designed anything that is objectively brilliant. The shoes he makes are ugly, bizarre looking. They look like prop shoes for some kind of UFO movie or something like that. The ones that are designed by other people are, are quite popular, I understand, and have been over the years, had sort of a cult following. So, I, look, I'm, the point is, I'm not going to sit here uh, and spend a great deal of your time trying to make sense of him. I'm not going to sit here and try to make sense of Kanye West. There's nothing to make sense of. There's no more sense to be made here of what Kanye West is saying than there is sense to be made of what some homeless schizophrenic guy on a corner who's ranting and raving about Jesus and the Jews and the banks there's no more sense to be made of, of Kanye West remarks than there is sense to be made of that. The one thing I'll point out is as Kanye West talks about how suppressed he is and how he has no free speech and the, the enemies of the First Amendment are coming after him, I will point out that he is very much not banned on Twitter. Uh, he has 36 million followers on Twitter. People like me, people like Laura Luma remain banned. But anyway, I, I don't want to spend a great deal more time on this debacle. I, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and try to make sense of of this, you know, set of wild, unbelievable claims and waving around a net. And, and it's just, uh, it's embarrassing. It's an embarrassment to his family. Uh, it's an embarrassment to, I think, you know, Ali's a great friend of mine. I will say that if you want to call that a conflict of interest. Ali has been a great friend of mine for years. Um, I don't have anything bad to say about Ali. I never have had anything bad to say about Ali. I think he, he might've been the one, you know, sane person in the room here. So there's nothing to make sense of here. We're not going to try to make sense of what he's saying. I'm not going to be some kind of warlock or shaman who's going to tell you I can make sense of this. Um, there is absolutely nothing to make sense of.
Uh, somebody asked here in the live chat, Jacob, how much do you think the Kanye West fiasco do you think is a case of lack of accountability among black men? I don't I don't think it has really much to do with black men or or white men or, or anything. This is just this is a celebrity who is in the midst of a manic crisis. It's not unheard of. This is like, you know, I would say quite a lot worse than anything Charlie Sheen went through. Uh, at least he was holed up in his home. He wasn't uh, going on broadcast to this extent, to this degree. But we've seen this before. And typically it doesn't end well because you see the manic side of the uh, of the coin here. But then there's going to be the the downturn as well. Somebody in a, in a bipolar depressive state is going to have the other side of it when they come down. And that's when really bad things tend to happen. You know, people people have a high rate of suicidality in these cases. So, you know, maybe somebody will intervene to help Kanye West. Uh, maybe somebody will intervene to get him uh, the help he needs to help him enter a more regulated mental state beyond the PR implications of this, beyond the business implications, just to just to get his mind uh, out of this dysregulated state, but maybe not. And if not, uh, it's, it's not going to go anywhere good. I can promise you that this is not going to end, uh, in any kind of way that is, that is positive people that, that have these kind of crises, um, they don't, they don't, they don't suffer good outcomes. They they suffer bad outcomes. So, Anyway, I got to move on here. Uh, Before we get into the news, I I do want to talk a little bit about this sentencing in Ohio that took place earlier this week. In keeping with, uh, in Ohio, what they call House Bill 186, we pleaded to a single count of telecommunications fraud, Jack Berkman and I, in relation to the robocall. We were charged with 15 counts. We were in a position where the prospects of going to trial, given the political nature of the case and the political makeup of that jurisdiction and the kind of jury that you would end up with, uh, the prospects of going to trial were just not ones that looked very good. And so uh, what we did is we pled to a single count or pleaded to, I think is the correct grammar, a single count of telecommunications fraud. The judge, in keeping with House Bill 186 there in Ohio, uh, did not sentence us to any jail. The judge, I will say, did go on quite an unhinged diatribe uh, comparing us to Klansmen, comparing us to people who have murdered civil rights leaders over the years, uh, saying that a political robocall is comparable to people who have committed lynchings in the old South, in the Jim Crow South. It, it was it was quite the diatribe, which I will say I absolutely, unequivocally take issue with. 100%. And I will also say that one year before that sentencing hearing, there was an incident uh, which which was alleged, in which uh, apparently this same judge uh, essentially, assault, I guess, assaulted somebody is the allegation and threw 
a person of color out of the elevator because he didn't want them riding in the elevator with him. That's the allegation. I can't speak to whether it's true or false. I have not been accused of anything like that ever. So whatever the motivation uh, for that diatribe, I will tell you that I deny those kinds of implications that we are any kind of racists, that we are uh, on the same playing field or, or in this in league with Klansmen or something like this. This is the most absurd uh, implication, the most absurd allegation of all. It always has been. Uh, I'm Jewish myself. I uh, hail from a Jewish family. I have people of color in my family. I have many uh, dear friends who are people of color. And perhaps even more insulted by those allegations than me are they. They, they are even more insulted than I am. Um, so that was the sentencing. What he did sentence us to uh, was 500 hours of, reg- he said 500 hours of registering low-income people to vote in the Washington, D.C. area. I am obviously uh, consulting with counsel as far as what that really means, uh, what that actually looks like. You know, we we have to determine uh, what we're what we're allowed to do with regards to registering low income people to vote. How we could ensure that the people that we are registering to vote are in fact allowed to vote. Um, you know, ensuring that they are uh, U.S. citizens, ensuring that they are not uh, people who are prohibited from voting because they've been adjudicated mentally ill or because they they are convicted felons. I don't know exactly. There's a whole host of uncertainties, obviously, with what precisely that means. Of course, the sort of implication of that, I think that most people would read into it, is that you are bad Republicans, Jacob Ohl and Jack Berkman, and thereby you will go on essentially a forced march to register Democrats to vote or, you know, people who are overwhelmingly Democrat. Now, of course, even if we registered one million low-income voters in Washington, D.C. to vote, if we were allowed, presuming we were allowed to do it, presuming we were able to do it, and presuming there are that many people, there are not. But hypothetically speaking, even if we registered one million Democrat voters in the District of Columbia, how much impact would that have on the presidential election? Zero. Because, of course, the District of Columbia does not have a say in the presidential election. How much impact would that have on the balance of the House? Zero. I mean, they have non-voting sort of members at large for the District of Columbia. Wouldn't have any impact. Same in the Senate. Would have no impact. How much impact would it have on, you know, local races for city council and mayor and things like that? Well, none because, well, of course, even in that case, D.C. is 90 some odd percent Democrats. So, but it is this sort of this sort of poetic attempt to say, well, they went on a forced march, they've been re-educated, and now they've registered Democrat voters. That's the idea. Uh, but of course, we are we are thankful. Um, we are thankful about all of this. 
I should point out that somebody asked you in the chat about the the New York case. Uh, the New York case is not, I mean, it's not a criminal case. It's a lawsuit. So it's a civil case and it's ongoing. Um, the, of course, the central allegation in that case made by both a private plaintiff and uh, the New York attorney general is that we allegedly violated the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1873. This is something that they have brought out uh, and tried to make new case law on in an attempt to be able to deploy it against any Republican whose conduct they don't approve of. Of course, it's a crazy allegation. So that's the New York case. The The other case that is criminal would be the, the Michigan case. So the New York case is just civil. The Michigan case is a criminal case. That case uh, has been stayed. The Michigan Supreme Court has taken up that case. Remember, these states have two very different laws on the issue, two very different laws. In Ohio, the allegation was telecommunications fraud, uh, seven or eight counts of that and seven or eight counts of bribery. I don't understand exactly where the term bribery comes in there. I never have, but nonetheless, uh, the Michigan case is a it's totally different set of laws. Uh, their state Supreme Court has taken it up. And we are hopeful that their state Supreme Court there in Michigan will will strike down the charges against uh, Jack Berkman and I. So that's the status of those. Obviously, I'm, I'm thankful to be here with you and, and be able to uh, continue doing the show and, and, and not be in jail in Cleveland, God forbid. I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful that the judge issued a sentence uh, despite his diatribe about us being as bad as the Ku Klux Klan, basically is what I understood him to say. I'm thankful that he, he did issue a, a sentence which did not include jail because that's what the law called for. As far as the individual dynamics of the sentence he did hand down, that's something that you know we're in the process of figuring out even the logistics of. I, I just can't tell you now what that will actually look like. I don't know. There's a whole host of things as far as reconciling that with local laws, as far as what we're even allowed to do locally. And that I will probably have some clarity on uh, sometime over the next week or two. So anyway, guys, I, I just wanted to give you that update here. Two plus years into that, that battle, uh, many tens of thousands of dollars spent on legal fees there. Uh, a lot of uh, stress, obviously, a lot of, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a battle, basically, is what I'll say on that. So, you know, you, you have these situations and, and, you know, you know what the state of the country is. And I think that the sentence says a lot about the state of the country. I think the fact that charges were brought in the first place says a lot about the state of the country. And um, that's what's going on. Of course, meanwhile, uh, somebody who has not been charged with any crimes, somebody who has not been arrested, somebody who has not been uh, sentenced at all, is Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder, the CEO of FTX, founder of Alameda Research, the defunct hedge fund, allegedly. We don't really have any evidence that the hedge fund really did ever have any trading that took place. I'm not saying it didn't take place. I'm saying there's no evidence that Alameda Research ever executed Bitcoin arbitrage trading profitably. 
They could have. It's feasible that it did happen. But there's no evidence for that. And I keep seeing the media and I keep seeing even commentators I like, like Patrick Boyle. Is it Patrick Boyle? Uh, yeah, I think it's Boyle. It could be Doyle, but I think it's Boyle. A bald guy on YouTube come out and say uh, that they, they traded profitably at Alameda Research. There's no evidence of this. But that's the claim. Anyway, both of those have blown up. Sam Bankman-Fried now coming out more and more. He first did an interview with this Tiffany Fong over the phone. The, the sound quality was not great. I've listened to that. There were not a lot of claims that made sense to me there. Uh, he did talk to uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, virtually at this uh, deal book summit uh, that was $2,500 a piece to attend in New York City. Andrew Ross Sorkin wore this very tie. One of my favorite ties, this is a Brioni tie. Uh, or No, no, it's an Eaton tie. It's not a Brioni, it's an Eaton tie. I really like this tie, and I like it a lot less now that Andrew Ross Sorkin was wearing it while interviewing Sam Bankman-Fried. So I figured I'd wear it maybe one last time here and then not wear it for a while on the show. But in any event, he talked to him, and uh, we did not get a lot of clarity. We did not get a lot of specificity. There were not a lot of good follow-up questions. Notably, Sam Bankman-Fried received chuckles from the crowd when he said he's had a bad month. Uh, he received a round of applause when the interview concluded. Now, some will say the crowd was applauding Andrew Ross Sorkin's interview and not, in fact, Sam Bankman-Fried, but... Uh, the interview itself was not worthy of applause either. It says a lot about that group, that crowd. Uh, he has managed to convince, I guess, Bill Ackman, who tweeted, uh, call me crazy, but I believe Sam Bankman-Fried. Kevin O'Leary retweeted that and said the same thing. Kevin O'Leary, of course, has, has been involved uh, in investing in this project, in receiving equity, and I think also cash in exchange for being a spokesperson for FTX. Uh, used his his stature in the public based upon being on the show Shark Tank uh, to promote this uh, heavily and, and bring in a lot of people. One person who is not convinced, and I think it has a lot to do with his background, is Jim Cramer. Listen to the clip. He does seem genuinely sorry, uh, but again, there are many out there who believe he's just a pathological liar. Well, I'm that. You he's are. a pathological liar. He's a con man. Intent means nothing. Saying sorry means nothing. If you co-mingle, if you had no record keeping, those are against the law. It's not like they're like, you know what, I was sloppy and I feel bad and I'm sorry. No, you were sloppy, you didn't keep records. Illegal, all right? So if you're admitting to illegality, even though you think that you had no intent, the U.S. attorney does not care one whit about intent. What the U.S. attorney cares about is did you break the law? Like, you don't go to the U.S. attorney and say, man, I'm, I'm really I sorry. Didn't I, I didn't I mean didn't it. I didn't mean it. I didn't hurt anybody. So that's Jim Cramer there talking about the fact that intent doesn't really matter as to a lot of these crimes uh, that are alleged of Sam Bankman-Fried. He's absolutely right. Uh, he is absolutely right to point this out. Now, I'll, I'll remind you about Jim Cramer's background. And I've been critical of Jim Cramer before on the show about his stock calls, about the whole nature of the thing where he has to give stock picks constantly. It makes his job almost impossible. But what you have to understand about Jim Cramer is that Jim Cramer went to Harvard Law School. I think he graduated at the top of his class or near the top of his class. He then worked for Alan Dershowitz, uh, basically as a, as a junior lawyer under Alan Dershowitz. And uh, he then split off and joined Goldman Sachs as a trader, got into trading, started his hedge fund. Jim Cramer is no slouch intellectually. That's what you have to understand about Jim Cramer. You can take issue with his style. You can take issue with the format. But Jim Cramer is uh, and, and has been 
throughout his life, an intellectual uh, titan. I mean, he does have a, a great deal of intellectual acuity and, and, and ability. And he did graduate from Harvard Law School and he was a member of the bar and, and he did practice some law. Um, and what he's discussing here in particular is the fact that many of these crimes, commingling funds or, or, or um, various securities law violations, do not require intent. First of all, they don't require knowledge of the law. Ignorance of the law is not an, a defense to these, to these allegations or, or most allegations, frankly. Uh, the other issue, of course, is that, frankly, even if intent were required, there's a lot of items here. There's a lot of tidbits that do point to the idea that there was criminal intent, knowing criminal intent. What do I mean? Well, for instance, the idea that they used these deleted chats and, and they didn't have an accountant and they but mainly this this idea of not keeping records and the like. I mean, that is something that points to the idea that you have criminal intent. So uh, it is it is really something to see. I mean, Goldman Sachs, I think I think it was Goldman Sachs, maybe in a different bank, was fined recently because some of their traders were found to be using WhatsApp and Goldman Sachs had to pay a fine for not monitoring closely enough to know that their traders working under them at a low level were using WhatsApp and they're not allowed to. They have to use an internal chat system uh, of, of a certain type that is monitored and records are kept uh, by Goldman. And the fact they didn't do that caused Goldman to be fined. I think the traders were probably fired, um, and it's 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 not allowed. This is an incredibly tightly regulated business, so tightly regulated that it, it makes it almost impossible to have a a financial startup, a startup, because you're so mired in the regulation that that you just you can't focus on the business itself. And so Kramer understands that there's not intent required for a lot of these violations. Um, so it's, so it's, uh, it, it is really something to see. Um, I, I, there's, there's so many clips I could play you from Sam Bankman fried here. I, I just want to let you know, if you want to watch these hour long interviews, um, you can go watch them, but I, I, I did not find Sam Bankman fried's interviews really convincing. I, I told you, I reported on telegram. I had the opportunity to speak to Sam Bankman fried for a very brief phone call. A very brief, well, it was a telegram call, I suppose. Um, and I didn't glean a lot from the call. A couple things that I gleaned is that this idea that they were having wild drug parties, eh, it doesn't seem to be, uh, it doesn't seem to be true. There doesn't seem to be much evidence for that. Were they dating? People dating? P quite possibly. But the idea they were having wild drug orgies and things... I don't actually know there's a lot that there's any evidence for that or, or much evidence at all. Uh, same thing with this idea. There was a polycule. Not sure uh, that that's true. So, look, there's certain elements on, on the margins here that are reported that aren't true. The one thing I will say is that a lot of the central allegations that are made against Bankman Freed, uh, they are allegations which are based upon, you know, a tweet here from a certain account that says that they're monitoring a certain thing on the blockchain publicly that they now know to be true. Or you'll have something that Reuters reports, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried's parents bought $121 million of real estate in the Bahamas. Okay. I mean, Reuters, uh, they are, I would say, on the upper moderate side of things when it comes to verifying sources and publishing fake news. They, they they're in the sort of the, in terms of diligence, I'd say they're in the top two, they're in the top third. 
I would say, uh, of of diligence on that stuff. But I haven't seen the the documents myself. I haven't seen any of that. And and all I say in these stories is it's important to recognize that you know we don't have subpoena power. We don't have search warrant authority. And to the degree that we can glean original documents, we can glean original documents. But we don't have a lot of that here. Does that mean those allegations aren't true? Of course not. But what you find in any element of a story like this that gets a lot of play in the media, and I have been within these stories, I have been the subject of these stories before, so so I can attest to this. And I have also worked as a lobbyist and, and, and an advisor to people that are in the center of these kind of stories before, is that when you know the truth, and then a story kicks off like this, it's trending and everybody's talking about it. You see a hundred things a day that you say, well, that's not true. We were not even in that country at that time. We weren't there. Or you say, well, what are you talking about there? I wasn't even in the same state as that. I, I, I wasn't there or I didn't meet him. I've never met him in my life. Uh, you have original knowledge and there's a hundred things always that tr- turn out to be not true. Uh, and, and, and over time, generally speaking, a lot of those things are are reconciled with the truth and reconciled with the evidence. So that's something uh, that is important to keep in mind here. So it's a developing story. Uh, meanwhile, uh, just out yesterday, the, the Kraken crypto exchange, uh, they laid off 30% of their workforce, some 1,100 people uh, outside the crypto industry, CNN, still a scam industry, but CNN uh, laid off uh, a number of people. Uh, they they're just starting yesterday, basically, they're, they're laying off people. Uh, just talking about some of the breaking news here. Hakeem Jeffries officially elected uh, within the Democrat caucus, the first black leader of any congressional caucus. I reported that he would be picked as the top Democrat back in December of last year. Because there's people I work with on K Street uh, from the lobbying side of things that are that are Democrat lobbyists. We run a bipartisan firm, really. We, when we need Democrats, we subcontract things. Um, and. I heard about this back in December. They were crowning him. He had the money raised that was necessary to be that guy. And if Pelosi actually was going to step down from the role, because there's still some question about that, he was going to be the guy. And I reported that on my Substack back in, I think it was December 9th of last year. So that's now been codified. An important piece of news out today, or or I guess earlier in the week, I guess it was a, a bit early in the week, but... Um, Biden now has has yet again extended the pause on student loan repayment requirements. Uh, he has once again extended it this time till the end of June 2023. Uh, he says this is a matter of extending the pause until the Supreme Court has a chance to rule on whether or not his student debt relief program, uh, his executive basically edict to wipe out student loan debt, whether or not that's constitutional. Lower courts have ruled it's not. It has now gone to the Supreme Court. As of just moments ago, we got confirmation that the Supreme Court is examining that case. Um, so that's why he has extended it through when the Supreme Court would presumably rule on it, uh, probably June of next year. Now, once again, this flies in the face of the idea that we're trying to stamp out inflation. And what I have said for for more than the last year, since the summer of last year, is that the problem is we are trying to fight inflation with monetary policy alone and not with fiscal policy. And if inflation is to be defeated, it has got to be approached from both 
the monetary policy side of the house and also the fiscal policy side of the house. For those of you who don't you know, normally use the, the, these kind of terms or, or follow this stuff, what I mean by that is on the monetary side, you have the Fed, their ability to buy or to sell assets on their balance sheet, their idea to their 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 ability to to set the benchmark rate to to control uh, liquidity within the markets. That's one lever you can pull, and they have raised interest rates significantly to where they've gone from basically thousand year lows, all time historical lows, to now uh, being. The highest rates that we've had in the mortgage market, for example, they don't set the mortgage rate directly, but their actions cause it to go up uh, to basically 20 year highs going back to the late 90s, 7 percent mortgage rates. But if at the same time the Fed's doing that, the Biden administration on the fiscal side of the House and Congress are creating all of this spending power that shouldn't exist under normal circumstances, well, then you're going to have a problem. It's going to uh, obviate some of the ability for the Fed to achieve what it's trying to achieve. And I said last year, if, if, if Jerome Powell's serious, he would threaten to resign and he'd say, listen, we aren't going to crush the capital markets. We're not going to go out and break our country's banks and break our country's financial system and break our country's real estate markets and break our country's construction business, which has been done now, basically. Construction industry was booming last year. Last summer, oh my gosh, the construction clients we would get on the lobbying business, it was unbelievable. They've had their backs broken now by the Fed. We're not going to do that if you're going to keep going out there and, and, and basically removing the utility of what we're doing by engaging in reckless spending and, and insane fiscal policy. And, but they've continued to do that. The Inflation Reduction Act that that spent you know, four, five, six, seven hundred billion dollars essentially when you when you account for everything on climate change, on solar panels and wind and you know, extending discounts on electric cars and all this nonsense. The Chips Plus Act, which is, you know, thrown a wrench in the way that the global supply chain for chips works and Hey, we're going to move TSMC's plants from Taiwan to Arizona. Hey, that's fine. I'm I'm all about that, but I mean in the midst of an inflationary crisis, what you may not want to do is pass a bill that that forces that to happen immediately and jams up the whole supply chain of goods. So uh, on the fiscal side of the house, it's it's been a total disaster. And then this move here, and it's like, you know, college students are supposed to be poor. That's it. You're poor in college, usually, unless you have like your parents sending you an allowance. That's the whole idea, you know, ramen noodles, college student. And frankly, people that just get out of college and get into their first entry level job or their first couple of jobs, they're usually poor, too. You know, that That's kind of the way of the world. It's always been that way. And, and, and a big part of that is that, you know, you have to pay for school. And, and of course, the, the whole scam of these colleges raising their prices 10,000%. Over the last 30 years is to blame for a lot of this and, and is in, frankly enabled by the federal government coming in and allowing the colleges to have guaranteed loans for it for any kind of degree they want to offer, whether it's worthless or not. But, you know, it's 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 also not the case that what we have to do is relieve people of debt they signed up for so that they have 
spending power that they normally wouldn't have until 10 years into their career. Like you have, you know, college girls, they're, they're graduating from Duke, they're graduating from Tulane, they're graduating from Florida State, they're working at, you know, an entry level white collar administrative job, slightly higher brow than, say, a secretary, and they're buying $3,000 purses, folks. And, and they're living in $2,500 to $3,500 a month one-bedroom apartments with no roommates. And they, they have massive spending power to, 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 to buy every damn trinket they see on an Instagram ad. And it's not just women. I mean, it's the same, th- same deal with men. They tend to be a bit more frugal, in my opinion, as I've seen lately. The men tend to be a bit more frugal. But like that is not the way of the world. That is not how markets normally function. And holding yourself to the standard of allowing peak froth spending power among a group of people that have never had spending power is a pretty unbelievable thing. And, and then what have you done simultaneous to that? It's like, well, they can buy the $3,000 purse and they can pay $3,000 a month in rent. You know what they can't do? They can't buy a house anytime soon. They can't start a family and buy a home to, to, to put a roof over the head of their children. They can, they can live in the $3,000 a month apartment in the city, but if they go out to the suburbs, they can't get into anything because now the interest rate is 7%, and the prices have not really adjusted for that and gone down really significantly in most places. Oh, and, and by the way, if they do that, and they go outside of the peak metroplexes, well, the jobs don't pay very much there anyhow. I mean, it doesn't, the, the math doesn't work. So the whole system is disjointed. The whole system is totally disjointed. It's, it's totally abnormal. We got to figure this out. And you know, a, a normal market will have benefits that we're not seeing here. Like I'm talking a lot about the downsides here, but I am truly the upside guy. I am the optimist here. And there are benefits to normalcy returning to the markets. Believe me. I mean, let's talk about the upsides here. Like, okay, you have some interest rates. What's the upside of that? Well, those guys I talked about that are a little more frugal, maybe they're saving some money. Well, maybe they make some interest on it. You know, maybe they buy a three-month CD that pays them something. Yeah, it's still not going to cover inflation, but it pays them something. They don't have to spend every single dollar they get in lest it become uh, you know, worth 10% less by the end of the year or 15% less, depending on where they're living. You can save now. They don't have to pile it into a meme stock or else it becomes zero. You know, you have these people that are laid off. Well, well, now that you have a, a more normal financial market, let's say, or it's becoming more normal, they can start companies. If they happen to be a brilliant engineer that was laid off by Twitter, a brilliant engineer is laid off by Facebook or Salesforce or one of these big tech companies. Look, you're going to have a percentage of these people that start brilliant companies and they don't have to live in a world where they cannot receive funding for their brilliant business because the only thing that the venture capitalists can fund are the most frothy, ridiculous, get rich quick schemes like FTX. The great products, the great actual technology, not just bits and bytes, not just reconfigured schemes from the 1990s, the really great tech, the hardware, 
the chips, all of this that are going to revolutionize the world are born in rough market conditions like this. Well, at least they're conceived in rough market conditions like this. They're conceived. They're conceived when the guy who was fired by Facebook, he's sitting on a little bit of cash. He can't get another job and he, and he breaks out a yellow notepad and he starts jotting down ideas. And his ideas do not have to be a meme coin, a shit coin, a meme stock. They don't have to be, you know, some idea for an exchange that can never hope to work anyway because of the exact model it's pointing out where you offer extreme leverage to people trading speculative, illiquid, uh, low float, uh, extremely volatile assets. He can actually come out with a product that's worthy. This is when the Facebooks are born this is when the Twitters are born. This is when the Ubers are born. Say what you will about what those products have become. But, th- but this is when the ideas that deliver tremendous value to the public. Well, again, I said born, but it's when they're conceived at least. Whatever you want to see, whatever lexicon you want to use here. They're born now. And and even if you're not the guy who, who, by the way, you know, is the guy with the notepad. And if you're not and you think that sounds like you, maybe you ought to break out the notepad and be that guy. I'm kind of thinking that I might do that. But even if you're not, you can be the person who benefits from that. You will be the person that benefits from that in the aggregate. You know, the, the, the market's returning to normal. Interest rates returning to something is part of what is going to shake up Silicon Valley. It's going to blow out all of this froth. It's going to blow out all of this crap. It's going to blow out the FTXs and the pipe.coms and the bolt.coms and the, you know, just these rehash.com scams. It's just .com bubble 2.0, except this time, instead of calling it a .com business, we call it an app business. Those are going to be cleared out. Those investments are going to be written down. Thankfully, there were some other ones that worked. I mean, like Sequoia, the fund that put $200 million into FTX, uh, they already returned the entire fund with interest. But all that stuff's going to be cleared out, and some really great, tremendous products are going to be coming out of all of this. And, and, and 10 years from now, 12 years from now, this country is going to have an economy 15 years from now, notwithstanding all the other problems that exist in the world and surviving those, but we're going to have an economy that is $30 trillion, $35 trillion, and I mean $35 trillion real dollars, not $35 trillion funny money, Fed pump, uh, GameStop trading at uh, 800,000x PE multiple. I mean real money. I mean real productivity. And it's going to be a great thing. So all of that is the upside here, folks. And it is something that, you know, I I think you're going to gain a lot of value from. I think you're going to gain a a great deal of, of value from. So looking here at the chat says Blackstone halted withdrawals on their $125 billion real estate fund today. Real estate will be wiped out. Well, you know why they halt withdrawals probably is just that the money's not there. I don't think they have the liquidity. That's probably why. Uh, 
Will Sam Freed go to jail? I think probably yes. Or he will be Epstein. He will be suicided. I am I'm saying today there's a reasonable chance that Sam Bankman Freed will be suicided. So that's on the record now. So that's the upside of all this, but Biden administration not helping out getting back to a normal economy with this student loan situation. I want to talk about what's going on here in California, my original home state. I haven't lived there in a while, but uh, this is a report out of the Daily Mail. Thousands of convicted pedophiles in California are being released from prison in less than a year for horrific acts, including rape, sodomy, and sexual abuse of kids under 14, a DailyMail.com investigation reveals. Unbelievable story here. This has been happening uh, not just recently, but since about 2014-15 in California for a long time. Daily Mail here, though, reports an analysis of California's sex offenders database shows thousands of child molesters are being let out of prison after just a few months. After just a few months. The investigation reveals more than 7,000 sex offenders were convicted of lewd or lascivious acts with a child under 14 years of age. So under 14. Uh, Those 7,000 pedophiles were released the same year they were convicted. Well, I guess at least they didn't do any robocalls. Others were uh, others who committed some of the worst child sex crimes, including sodomy and rape of children, served similarly short sentences Current and former Los Angeles sex crime prosecutors tell the Daily Mail that the figures are terrifying and shameful. Deputy DA John Hatami blames Prop 57, a 2016 bill allowing early parole for nonviolent felons, which was supported by his boss, Los Angeles DA George Gascone. Thousands of child victims are being denied justice, and George Gascone and his group of radical prosecutors can care less. Tommy said, well, you know, the the problem with a lot of this, too, is that normally when I look at the kinds of depravity taking place in California, when I look at the uh, terrible release of uh, criminals onto the streets and uh, the decriminalization of drugs and the chaos and the homelessness and all of that in California, I say, well, good for them. Uh, You know, in San Francisco, they're getting what they voted for. But you can't say that here because these kids did not have a vote. They certainly didn't vote for this. And yet these horrific pedophiles are being let right out of jail less than a year in for raping uh, children. I mean, again, thousands under 14. These aren't just merely sex offenders. These aren't just merely people who solicited prostitutes. They aren't merely people who... Uh, expose themselves in a park. These are people who raped thousands of children and they are being allowed right out of jail in under a year. And and if if you're going to have that be the policy in California, if that's going to be their policy, then they may as well in California just say what they're actually doing, which is they're legalizing pedophilia. I mean, if, if they're just going to let these people out in less than a year, for raping young children, then why are they going through the trouble of 
uh, uh, of pressing the charges and doing and putting these poor kids on the stand and traumatizing them more and then housing these people for three months and feeding them for three months and then putting them back out and do, doing all of this kind of paperwork and shuffling and spending of money if they're just going to be right back out there raping more children in a few months. At that point, you just say what your policy is, which is basically what they've done in California is they have legalized pedophilia. Of course, it's more pervasive in some counties than it is in other counties. Some counties take a tougher approach to it than other counties. But on the whole, you just say what it is. I mean, it's like you say with drugs in California, that basically they've legalized drugs. Drugs are allowed. Drugs are celebrated in California. Uh, There's more than just Prop 57. Of course, that uh, Congressman Scott Weiner successfully passed a bill that greatly reduced the sentence for uh, men who sodomize young boys uh, under the age of 14, reducing the sentences for those crimes. And there's just no bottom for these people. That's what you discover. There's just no there's there's just no low that is too low. I mean, it, it used to be the case that you say like, well, oh, well, what are they going to do next? Legalize crack? Yeah. Yeah, basically they are. But what are they going to do next? Like, you know, just let homeless people assault people on the street? I mean, that, I mean, Jesus, they're not that crazy. I'll vote Democrat. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I mean, this is not that crazy. Well, yeah, they, they are going to do that. And now you say, well, they, they surely would not let pedophiles out of jail in less than a year for raping children under the age of 14. And... That's, in fact, what they're doing to the tune of thousands. And there will be thousands or tens of thousands or, or perhaps hundreds of thousands more children who are raped, who are molested, who are, frankly, even the ones who, who, who are not so unlucky as to be raped or molested. There's going to be ones who are sent lewd images online and traumatized and damaged for the rest of their lives thanks to the Democrat rule in California. And as you know, California leads the rest of the country. This is going to be more and more what you see across the rest of the country. And there is, in the current way, in the the current system, no way of uh, seemingly fighting this. I mean, you can put up a futile fight in California. You can rally. You can be Larry Elder. You can run for governor. You can be uh, a, 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 a moderate Democrat, maybe, who runs for mayor in LA. And the moderate Democrats still couldn't win this last time. Still couldn't. They still went with the far leftist. These people still vote for this. And to the degree that the votes are legitimate versus ballot harvested versus this versus that, again, the, 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 the net result is the same. Absolutely sickening. Absolutely sickening. And, and, and now you see why we have to do what we do at Predator DC. You see why it has been so challenging for us to collaborate with law enforcement. In some instances, we have received good collaboration from law enforcement. But man, it is tough. It is not simple. It is not easy. And then you have the case in California we talked about in the last episode where, you know, sadly, a Virginia police officer goes out to California He's been grooming a, an underage teen online. He knocks on the door of her grandparents where she sometimes lives. She's not there. He has the grandparents call, says he's a police officer. Call, get the mom and the daughter there, the, the, their granddaughter, that is. 
uh, who is the underage teen he's been grooming, and he murders the entire family, torches the home and torches the bodies, and kidnaps the girl. Oh, I broke that story with Predator DC. I was the first person to break that story. That's clear. Now a national story. I don't want credit. I don't care about credit. It's just I needed to get the truth out there. It wouldn't hurt to get some credit, but it's just, you know, I don't expect anything from the media anymore. Anything besides besides total failures and, 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 and total uh, support of the left. But we go here, you talk about, you know, no bottom. You talk about how the, the, the state of affairs in the country and you have this story again out of the Daily Mail. Great reporting from that outlet. Uh, Joe Biden's non-binary drag queen nuclear waste guru, Sam Brinton, is charged with theft after they, that's the pronoun uh, that this man uses, uh, were caught on camera stealing a bag from the Minneapolis airport's baggage claim. Now, for a Democrat, for a Biden administration official, no less, to be charged with theft in the city of Minneapolis, a, a famous or, or infamous Democrat cartel stronghold, basically, Democrat Party cartel stronghold, it must have been an, a, a true crime where they had real evidence and, and there was actual intent and all of that. Uh, but Sam Britton, 34, whose title was the DOE's, that's the Department of Energy's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition, is accused of taking a suitcase from an airport. Britton was caught on surveillance cameras at Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport, uh, taking a blue bag off of luggage after flying from Washington. Now, again, you know, presumably... If they or he had a bag that was, you know, similar that they brought with them and they accidentally grabbed the wrong bag off the thing, I'm sure they wouldn't be charged. So that 99.9% was not the case here. Owen reported the bag missing later that day and Britain was identified. Britain uh, claimed to have not taken the bag, but then changed their mind, admitting to removing it. Uh, by the case, but adding it was a mistake because they were tired. It's just uh, these fucking pronouns don't work. God almighty. Can't even read this. It just becomes such mangled and proper English. My God. Oh, it found guilty. I'm just going to say he could now face a five years in jail, $10,000. Well, we'll see whatever happens with that, whatever comes of this, but, uh, this person, this uh, freakazoid, has now uh, taken a leave of absence from uh, the role at the Department of Energy. I guess basically they they figured uh, the Biden administration let's appoint somebody to in charge of nuclear waste removal who looks like they were a victim of nuclear waste poisoning, who looks like they're some kind of three headed monster who's who's been exposed to radiation or something, and that was the idea. Because this is a true freak show. I mean, this is a non-binary, something, some kind of freak who's a man who's bald with lipstick and like men's clothes sometimes. And I mean, what the hell are we talking about here? It's like, once again, just mental illness galore. Uh, last up on the show today, I, I do want to talk about this new uh, study that came out. It's not brand new. Frankly, we could probably save it, but I'll go over it here. Uh, this was a new study that came out that uh, basically threw some new evidence out on this whole idea of, of happiness increasing with income. We have been told for a long time uh, that, that experience well-being does not increase at incomes above $75,000. Uh, 
Some might argue that with inflation, maybe that number is 100,000 now, or maybe it's more. I've heard other people throw out the number $150,000. But what this study found in particular uh, is that, and and the study here is, uh, you can, the, the title of the study, if you want to read it, it's in PMAS. It is, uh, experienced well-being rises with income even above 75000 per year. That is the title, if you care to look up the study. Uh, but this study found that, in fact, experienced well-being does increase with income. Now, some people said the math's wrong. It says linearly with log income. It's logarithmic income. How is it linear? Because it's very simple. If you look at the chart, this is how you can understand what they mean by that. Um, here's, here's the chart here. And the chart basically shows, okay, you have logarithmic income. Yes, that increases logarithmically because there's fewer and fewer people that make increasing amounts of money above a certain point. But the happiness meter can't be equally logarithmic because you can't really be 10 times as happy. You have to have a survey with with brackets on how happy and how unhappy you are. So you say out of 10, you can't say 1 million out of 10 if you're worth $400 million. So it's still only 10, but it does increase linearly experience well-being and, and continues to go up basically uh, this is uh, the, the, the format of the study was basically drawn by using this uh, My Happiness app or essentially an app where people that some 1.7 million people participating in this survey, they did not find the kind of plateau that's been talked about at $75,000 or at $150,000, as some other studies have said. They just didn't find it. Uh, basically, people seem to have more and more experienced well-being. And I think that makes a, a lot of sense, you know, in, in a world where, you know, as, as you make more money, you have more responsibilities. Trackyourhappiness.org is, is, the, is the site where the data was collected. 1.726 million people, quite a lot of participants, uh, you know, 10 level scale. So that's how it goes linear with income going log. It's for those of you who didn't understand that in the Twitter comments, as I saw a lot of, but, but you start making more and more money. And you have more and more different kind of responsibilities that come about just as a result of the money. And it's like, well, there you can find that one person in Idaho that made four million a year and they lived like they made a hundred grand a year. But even they then had to find a place to put all that money and invest it in whatever the hell they did. So even they experienced some added responsibility. But for most people, if you make more and more money, there's going to be even more responsibility associated with that. You know, now you live in a big, huge house and you have the problems that come with living in a big, huge house. Oh, this broke, that broke, that person has to come. What about the gardeners? What about the landscapers? What about this? What about that? I mean, it's a, it becomes a, a lot of responsibility, you know, and depending on what kinds of status symboling games that you want to play, like, oh, you know, our kid has got to go to that private school because, you know, their kids go to that school and we're going to seem less elite than them if our kids don't go to that school. Well, now there's all these other things that come about as a result of that. So depending on which and a lot of this is at some level responsibilities that as you become wealthy, you can choose to opt into or choose not to. But the reality is that, that that a lot of people do, and some of these things are opted into, and then they result in even more money. So it's not like they're disjointed from the idea of making more money. Oh, you know, uh, I don't have to worry about getting a country club membership. Well, the person who got the country club membership then made more money because they had it. So 
again, some of these things are, are inextricably linked to some degree, you see. And, and again, there are some people who, let's say, are not made to take on the kind of responsibilities associated with A, making $450,000 a year, one percenter, let's say, or B, then doing whatever it is that have to do the responsibilities that then come around with just having that money itself. But then what happens is that you hear stories about people where, oh, I know such and such. And it's always never somebody that people really know well. It's like their friend's friend, friend. Oh, yeah, he made a lot of money and he was not happy and he became miserable. Well, that does happen. Sure. But mostly those cases are people who did not really have the faculties to make that much money. Maybe they lucked into it. Maybe they inherited it. Maybe they married rich. Maybe they had a good trade on the market or some good investment that paid off. But they didn't really have the wherewithal to make that much money, especially to make it repeatably. And then because they didn't have the wherewithals to make the wherewithal to make that much money, they then didn't have the wherewithal to handle what then came with that money. And then they became miserable. Like, how, well, how do you handle people that always call you up and they need this or they need that and they want this and they want that? That's the thing that comes along with making a lot of money. And I'm not claiming to be some some rich person here. I'm 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 not. I'm really not. I'm not some kind of you know person here who who sits here and tells you I'm rich. I, I've dealt with a lot of rich people, and you know I I've done okay. I've done pretty well at my ripe age. At my, at my you know or not so ripe age, I guess my young age really. I say ripe kind of sarcastically, but I don't like to, to be sarcastic. So I correct, I correct the record there because I don't like to use sarcasm. It's not, it's not a favorite device of mine. So that you see that happen. Uh, but I think people read a lot into that and they do find areas of course, where there's some kind of plateau, but really the plateau is this. The plateau comes as a result of qualitatively. See, you have to read qualitative measures into this stuff here. And so the qualitative aspect is this. Let's say somebody has what it takes to work eight hours a day and they are so productive working eight hours a day that they can make $150,000. Fantastic. Now, let's say that they want to make $180,000 instead of one hundred and fifty. dollars there's nothing very simple they can do, let's say, to keep working eight hours a day and make that. So then what they have to do is they might have to work 15 hours a day now, almost twice as much, to make $30,000 more before taxes. So when we chart that all out and we find the people who did that, well, they're not going to look happier between 150 and 180, right? And they can't go to 200, so that doesn't that they don't look much more happy because they, they had to work twice as much. Now they're, 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 they're burning the candle at both ends or they have less time for their health. They have less time for anything else and they've made more money, but they're not more happy. Yeah. Okay. But the, that's not really what these statistics have ever claimed to be examining. What they have claimed to be examining is are rich people happier than poor people are, are, are middle-class people happier than poor people are rich, happier than middle-class. So if you take the people that are truly capable of making $1 million a year and ask, 
do they experience more well-being on average than the people who are truly capable and do make 200000 a year? The answer is yes, they do experience more well-being. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. They'd find a way to work 20% as much and make more or, or what have you. So if, if, you, if you adjust all of this statistical evidence for the qualitative realities, like why do you get a plateau between 150 and 200? Well, because a lot of the 150 people are really 150 people. That's their cap. They can work twice as much and make 200, but now they're not going to be more happy. That's why you get a plateau there. You see, it, it, it can be explained. But statisticians, a lot of times, they don't explain things. They don't try to find explanations for things. Uh, they don't know how to represent these kind of qualitative explanations mathematically. And sometimes they truly can't be represented mathematically, but they don't like that. They're not comfortable with that. They don't know how to put that in a study and have it peer reviewed. But that's not me. I, I'm not a researcher here. I'm just somebody trying to, to figure out the world, explain the world, uh, explain what's happening, use statistics where they're appropriate, but then read beyond the headline of the statistics. That's what I try to do. So anyway, folks, look, it's it's been a long show here. Thanks so much for joining me. I've got a role here and get this thing up. Uh, if you want to support this show, if you want to support this show, you go to Cash App at Real Jacob Wool, or you can go uh, to jacobwold.org slash podcast. I really appreciate all the donations. You keep the show going. If you get value from the show, send value back. I, I appreciate it greatly. But even more importantly, share the links, share the show, get it out there. Hopefully we'll be back on Twitter soon. We shall see uh, what happens. Uh, in the meantime, I will uh, prepare the next show. Keep covering all this. Follow over on Telegram, t.me slash Jacob A. Wool. Uh, and I will be back on Monday 2 p.m. Eastern Time Live on podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. Thanks so much for watching, and I'll see you on the next episode.